Hello, everybody. Welcome to National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is a show in which I get to know this city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here today. We're talking with Mary Mancini of Lucy's Record Shop. More on that momentarily. First, I just want to let you know that National Demystified is made possible by way of We Own This Town, who distributes the show. We Own This Town is a network of podcasts made by and for Nashvillians. So many great shows, including the brand new show, Lucy's Record Shop, which we're going to talk about in this very episode. One other thing, I have another podcast called You Are Good, which is a feelings podcast about movies. It's co-hosted by my great friend, Sarah Marshall. Sarah hosts another show called You're Wrong About. If you like movies, if you like feelings, if you like therapy stuff, but don't want to talk about therapy directly. (laughs) If you like Sarah's show, if you like this show, you will enjoy You Are Good, so please seek it out and find us there. So for those of you who don't know, Lucy's Record Shop was a 90s staple, a legendary 90s Nashville record store and all-ages punk club. And I am just fascinated by quasi-modern Nashville history, so stuff that's not like history, but stuff that's not in the immediate term. And I find the 80s and 90s, maybe because this is the time I came of age, but I find these times fascinating. And so I spend a lot of time in archives. I spend a lot of time in the Tennessean archives. I spend a lot of time in the Nashville scene archives. I spend a lot of time in the Nashville Public Library Special Collections And I just look for stuff that's interesting to me. And I started to see a bunch of listings for Lucy's Record Shop. And I was like, all right, this is the sort of place I would be interested in. I was not in Nashville in the 90s, so I was not aware of the legend as it was happening. But I recognized the bands that were on the listings. And I recognized like the attitude of the shop. And then finally, I read some pieces by the late, great Jim Ridley of the Nashville scene about Lucy's. And I was like, I know this place. I used to hang at places like this and I love this place. (laughs) I haven't even been to it. I want to talk with the person behind it. And I found a documentary, which we'll talk about in here called Lucy Barks. And I saw the place and I was like, oh my God, I truly do love this place. I truly have been in this place. And then I saw that Lucy's record shop was, and I, I had read this in passing, but I really put it all together watching this documentary and seeing there's Mary Mancini, who I know in a bunch of other contexts with regard to Nashville had not realized that this is how she arrived here. So I reached out to Mary. I was like, Mary, I want to talk about this record shop of yours. And she was like, this is perfectly timed. Why are you reaching out? And we talk about this in this episode. The timing was perfect because she was launching a podcast about the history of Lucy's at the same time. So I had an opportunity to talk with Mary about Lucy's. I had an opportunity to hear about why she launched a podcast about it. And we had a delightful conversation. I feel like I got to know Mary pretty well, pretty quickly in this conversation. And I can't wait to share it with you here. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks for being interested in the same sorts of Nashville history I am. And, you know, even if you're not, thanks for trusting me enough to come along. and listen as I marvel about these sorts of things with the people who are there. That's it. That's enough. Let's go talk with Mary. Thanks for being here, everybody.
Hello, Mary. Hi, Alex. How are you? Who are you and what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) What have you done? (laughs) Wow. How much time do you have? Uh, We've got time. (laughs) It's been a little little circuitous. Mm. Well, right now, and I don't know if we want to talk about this right now. I don't know if I want to talk about this, like right at the beginning, but I am teaching myself podcasting. Fantastic. And so I'm working on that. Um, But prior to that, I've been in uh, politics, activism, advocacy, lobbying, radio. I worked for a company that did uh, software development, Mm. so a little bit of tech. And then before that, when I first moved to Nashville in 1991, in 1992, I opened up Lucy's Record Shop, Hmm. which was a record store and all-ages punk venue. I, because of this podcast, and when I do like research bouts for this podcast, I will spend like two months looking at newspaper archives, just trying to figure out what I would like to cover. Wow. And I came across Lucy's listings and just listings. I had no other context for it um, outside of just knowing something must have been going on in the 90s. As I was seeing the listings, I was like, I know this. I was like, I know this place. I don't know this place, but I know this place. And then when I started looking for Lucy's specific stuff, I was like... Holy shit. <laughs> well, it really happened. <laughs> when you say you know this place, you didn't know the place, but you knew the place. I knew the like I was I based on the age range. So it sounds like you opened it in 92 and closed in 98, mm-hmm. the January 98. I was a kid in Portland, Maine, in and around Portland, Maine, who would have been hanging out at the equivalent Lucy's places there ah, gotcha. and so when i saw just like even in the in the listings it didn't even say like what kind of club it was but when i saw the band names i was like i know this oh okay. i know this place and then okay, so sure. i went and found the documentary lucy barks and was just like immediately taken i was like this is amazing so and then i saw you in, and i my frame of reference for you was the state democratic party yeah chair of the tennessee democratic party right, right. and then right. so i was like oh my god <laughs> You aren't from around here, oh my are you? God, no, I'm not. I'm not at all. So putting it all together, I was like, "This is amazing. I need to hear oh. everything about this place." Oh, that is so funny. Well, I'll try to fill in the the gaps for you. Yeah. So what? It's a you long were, time ago. You were in New York, and you came. So first of all, why did you come here, and why did you open a record shop? Like, why was that the option? So I came from New York. I was working in the music industry at a great place called Electra Records. Mm. It was fabulous. But I really felt like I wasn't evolving in my career. So it was during a time in Nashville, this happens every few years, or it did back then, 80s, 90s, 2000s, where all the major labels get this idea that we have to open up a rock and pop A&R office Mm. in Nashville. Like that's the next big place, right? Mm -hmm. LA, New York, Nashville, that's it. And it happens cyclically. And so that was one of those times. There were a bunch of record labels that were like, all right, we're going to open up a rock and pop office, A&R office in Nashville. And I wanted an A&R job. I had a line on a couple of jobs, did not have the actual jobs, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to leave. I'm going to move. And so I did. I didn't know anybody. I guess about six months after I moved, I I had a harder time finding a job than I thought, right? Mm -hmm. I did get a lot of, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) Uh, It was a very, very different Nashville than it is now. Mm -hmm. 
So back then it was, if you were not from Nashville, you were a unicorn mm-hmm. and you stood out like a sore thumb. Now it's just the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. 30 years later. So a friend of mine was visiting and he was a DJ and he said, take me record store shopping. And I'm like, okay. So we went to the, all the usual suspects back then. We mm-hmm. went to Phonolux. We went to Great Escape. There was no Grimies back then. We went, oh, and Tower, of course. Mm-hmm. And he was like, wow, you know, I can't find what I'm looking for, which were basically vinyl records put out on independent labels. And he said, you should open up a record store. I was like, well, that's a good idea. What else am I doing? Mm. So a few months later, I started researching. And then a few months later, I rented a commercial space, which was on Church Street, desolate section between 17th and 18th. It's where the World's End Mm -hmm. gay bar, one of the only gay bars in town at the time. And it was an empty storefront, about 24 square feet. And I rented it. And um, started just building out this record store. And that was in June of 1992. Supposed to open August 1st. I remember this. And I didn't have it together by August 1st. So I moved it to August 16th, which coincided with the day that Elvis died. Mm. And so all of the marketing uh, was all about, like, this is the anniversary of Elvis's death day. The walls were really bright and, and had some Elvis paintings on the walls. But, mm. And that some stock and people started to come. And that's kind of how it started. So when you started opening a store that... We take it for granted now that there's obviously there are indie cool shops now. But I imagine that when you started then, were you terrified of like putting time and sort of energy into a place and opening it that there was like not really a whole lot of precedent for? Or were you young and idealistic enough to not think about it? Uh, The second, the latter. (laughs) It's so funny because. You know, over the last 30 years, I've talked to a lot of people who are going to open their own business. And the first thing I say to them is, before you open XYZ shop, go work in another XYZ Mm -hmm. shop, right? Because I knew nothing about running a record store. I barely worked in retail when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I think I got fired from my first retail clothing job, right? So I knew nothing about any of it. I just was young and idealistic and like didn't know what I didn't know and just sort of did it. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, I still stand by that advice, right? Totally, like, yeah. like if you're going to open a coffee shop or whatever, go work in a coffee shop mm-hmm. or go do whatever it is you need to do. But at the same time, do you feel, though, that the naivete you brought to that shop enabled it to be some of the things that it was in a way that had you had experience, you would have not allowed that to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, I do. Yeah. I do. Like probably, having shows, I feel I think... like, is a thing, wild thing oh, to do. Oh, well, that's a know? whole nother. <laughs> I'll tell you that story. That's a whole nother thing because that was not part of the original plan. But um, I, I do think so. I, I But the pros and cons, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I think it would have been better if, I, like, I look at Doyle Davis from mm-hmm. Grimey's and Mike Grimes, right? Like, yeah. I know Doyle he toiled at Great Escape for, what, 15 years mm-hmm. before he opened up Grimey's with Mike Grimes. And mm-hmm. I, I look at that and I think what Grimey's has become mm-hmm. and how successful it is and just how knowledgeable the staff is. And and that's the, that's the bottle. I mean, I'm not saying you should work 15 years at a place. Sure. But I think that that really helped him. On the other hand, yes, I do think that sort of being sort of a sponge – and not knowing a lot and being a sponge for, for what other people wanted Lucy's to be in terms of the things that we sold. Um, listening to that, being able to listen to that without bias, my own bias, was helpful. So the things that stuck out to me when I was looking at the shot, there's so little video evidence of the 90s in Nashville that is readily accessible. So when I found... Because the technology was terrible. <laughs> totally. I mean, like, people just weren't carrying, like, you know, those the cameras. cameras. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, and so now we just have a proliferation of it, and I feel like we take it for granted on, yeah. on some level. But 
just seeing the shop, seeing a shop that had zines in it was so substantial. And I just immediately was like, where in my head, I'm like, where are all those zines now? Like, I need to know, mm-hmm. I want to find all that stuff. And like, who are these people? And can you tell me a bit about how that documentary came about? Like, where were you in the lifespan of the shop at that point? Like, how did that come together? Like, who do we see in that? Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, I think we were three years in at mm. the time. And... um I think in order to tell that story, I I need to talk about how the shop became a music venue as well. Yeah. So about three months after I opened, it was doing okay, right? The shop was doing okay. It had become sort of a destination. You know, I had some great friends, new friends that I had Mm. made that helped spread the word. And then Jim Ridley, of course, the amazing writer for the Nashville Mm. scene and sort of ambassador for everything that was new and cool in town, uh, wrote about it. And so that helped. And uh, and so it was doing okay. And I knew I wanted to have in-stores, like traditional in-stores mm. there, because that's you know, helps get the word out, right, when you have a band coming through mm. town to play there, as it does now. But about three months after I opened, I guess maybe October or so, th- this couple walks in named Don and April Kendall. Mm. And I-, I didn't know who they were, but they pulled up. They walked in and they start looking around, like like really looking around, like not just at the records, but like peeking into the part of the store that wasn't used <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And they told me that they were here for a meeting with the folks at the uh, next door at the World's End mm-hmm. and the Midnight Sun because they had been putting on all ages punk shows and they needed a new place to do it. And they've been doing it for years and kept having to find new places and the place they were doing it got sold. And so they were just desperate, right? And they told their following bunch of punk rock kids in Nashville, or music fans, you know, just hold tight, we're looking for a place, right? And, and those kids were like chomping at the bit. Mm. They had their meeting, and I guess they called maybe a couple of days later, and they said, we have this proposal, we want to use the shop, part of the shop that you're not using, and come in and do shows. I guess I told them, I'll think about it. And I did, and then I called them back, and I was like, yeah, this is a good idea. And so the next weekend, like, they came in with about a dozen people and they built the stage <laughs> and they brought the sound system in. They built a little sort of um, area in the back to serve sodas and stuff. And they started doing migraine matinees on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I had this like instant clientele in the shop talking about punk rock and punk rock records and punk rock t-shirts and coming to shows every Sunday. And that really, really helped the profile a mm. lot. So fast forward about three years later. And the thing about Lucy's was it was a place where we let people kind of be mm-hmm. whatever they wanted to be. And if that meant you wanted to make a zine to express your inner anger and angst, we'll sell it. If you wanted to start a band and and put out a, a tape, we'll sell it, mm-hmm. right? If you want to start a band and play, well, send us the tape and we'll listen to it and maybe we'll book you, the kind of a thing. Since Vanderbilt was relatively close, we had a bunch of Vanderbilt kids come and one of them was named Stacy Goldate and she was a filmmaker yeah. at Vanderbilt. And she still is. She still does film. She's an editor and she makes other documentaries. And at the time she was like, I want to do a documentary about Lucy's. And I mean, of course, you know, Mm. you don't say no to something like that. Mm -hmm. She wants to create something. It would be a good way to document what was going on. There was something to document for sure. Mm. And so it was just a matter of someone else having a great idea, a creative, having a great idea and us just giving them the space to do it. Moving back for a second, what formed the ideology of the shop? You had told me what the motto was the other day when we talked on the phone, and I'd love for you to recap that here, but also just like what drove the fact that you're like, you know, this is going to be a shop that I'm going to sell records at, but also there'll be a place for kids to express themselves. Like, where did that come from? I've always been 
aware politically. Part of that, I think, just comes from my parents and my grandmother, who we would sit and talk about, not politics in terms of like who's going to get elected, mm-hmm. but um, the politics of life and, and social issues and economic issues. And so I've always been that way. I was, I guess that's the best way to start this. Mm-hmm. But so while I was coming up with the idea for the record store, or I had gone to Atlanta to see Billy Bragg Mm -hmm. play in Atlanta. And I swear that this is true, although I can't find the place, but I swear when I was down there, I saw that motto, no racist, sexist, Mm -hmm. or homophobic shit tolerated. Mm -hmm. And I stole it. I would love the help of researching this. I've looked everywhere. (laughs) I've Googled it a million times. I cannot find enough. I've asked, you know, other people, like no one, they're like, I don't know. But so I think, but I could have sworn that I found it there. I was like, well, I'm stealing this. And I originally had called the store uh, Revolutions Per Minute mm. because in my mind, I wanted to make it a place where people could come and register to vote, mm-hmm. right? Or we would do benefits for organizations like Planned Parenthood. And, and we ended up doing that stuff. And, we, we, you know, people could talk about whatever it is they wanted to talk about and be free to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seemed like a natural fit. You know, Revolutions Per Minute, Revolutions, it was kind of a cheesy pun, but it worked, right? I, I don't really know. It's just other than it's always been part of my life to be that way. Well, it's a given that, like, you were going to a Billy Bragg show. Like, first of all, like, oh, that's yeah. like a... <laughs> That's like a huge piece. Like you you were a person who was going to a Billy Bragg show. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot that's happening in that, you know. Good point. (laughs) Good, good, excellent point. Yeah, I'm a person who would go to a Billy Bragg show. I opened a record shop. This is obviously what happened. Called Revolutions per Minute. (laughs) But what was so fascinating about watching Lucy Barks, it's such an incredible special piece of media because you see so many things happening. It's like a 40-minute piece. So you see so many things happening and so many things stuck out to me. It's like one, you were an adult in a room full of incoming and outgoing like punk kids, like quote alternative kids from that time. There was so much going on that I'm sure that you witnessed as like the adult in the room. So that was so fascinating. I, when we talked the other day, I said that the thing that stuck out the most to me in that documentary is you say, you know, you kind of know what a teacher goes through because you you have these classes of kids that go in and then leave and you see some others go in and leave and you see these sort of this these crops of kids come in and come through. I found that fascinating. But then there's so many interesting things that are happening with genre at that time, you know, because if that came out three years in, that's like around 1995. It's before the FCC consolidation stuff happened. So like radio doesn't suck the most yet. <laughs> it was a very interesting... That's a whole other podcast that we should do. Exactly, but anyway, totally. It was a very interesting... Like, preceding that, there was a very interesting four years in popular music that sort of had a foot in the quote alternative in college rock at the time. You see alternative country finding a voice. You see different schools of punks talking about their different ideologies in the piece. There's so many fascinating things that happen in 40 minutes. Yeah. It's very true. <laughs> and what was that like to be to, when, revisiting this piece of, of of you being there and seeing these kids come through? Like, did you feel like a responsibility? Like, how how did you feel as a person witnessing all this? Yeah, that's such a hard question. Partly because, you know, going back 30 years and sort of remembering sure. <laughs> a lot has happened since then. And, you know, I think... I've kept in touch with some of those kids, mm-hmm. some of the kids that came to Lucy's. Donnie and April, for sure, we're good, you know, still very close. But thinking back on it now, as I'm sort of revisiting it, mm-hmm. I, I almost wish that I had 
paid attention more over the last 30 years mm. about what some of them, some of the kids were doing and where they were. Um, and some of them I did, you know, but, but there's, but there's this, I mean, there's just so many of them. Mm. And I just, I, I kind of, so I'm looking back on it with a little bit of regret, um, <laughs> which apparently is a thing I do. Um, <laughs> but I think in this instance, it's, it's, it's legitimate because um, I do have this sense of, it was such an important part of time in in their lives I think and I didn't maybe realize that at mm-hmm. the time maybe I did I don't know it's again it's hard to sort of pinpoint it was great back then I guess is really the best way to describe it mm-hmm. because what I'm finding as I'm starting to sort of talk to the Lucy's kids now is that it was an important space for them to have because 30 years ago in Nashville it was very hard if you didn't have a community that was based in your family or in your church or mm-hmm. in your school, a community where you felt safe and comfortable to be yourself. There was nowhere, mm-hmm. right? And Don and April, Kendall, had given them a taste of that by booking these all-ages shows. And now all of a sudden they have a place that's theirs and they could come to any time that they want, even when there wasn't a show, and and they could just hang out and they could – be themselves. And I, I felt that back then. I felt that that was important because the, the rules were hard and fast. There was no moving the goalpost kind of a thing in terms of what they could and couldn't do. They could do everything as long as they didn't hurt anybody else and they couldn't drink or smoke. Mm-hmm. And there's no racist or sexist or homophobic shit tolerated at the store, mm-hmm. right? So those are really hard and fast rules. And having those rules in place and, and making sure we have definitely did not deviate from that. If we caught somebody sneaking alcohol in, they were out, right? right? Like there was no, well, blah, blah, blah. It didn't matter if they were in the band, right? Mm -hmm. Like, no, you can't do this. And I think because we had those hard and fast rules, I felt comfortable at the time enough to just open the space to whoever Mm -hmm. needed to express themselves. So that was really... I think that's a lesson to anyone that you're like, I had boundaries. Boundaries, that's the word. Yes. We stuck to them and it created a nice space for everybody. And it created a nice space for everybody. <laughs> but to go back to what you said, I rewatched Lucy's, uh, Lucy Barks as well. Mm. And the thing that I didn't catch the first several times I watched it, even when we, we had a showing, I think it was um, maybe 10 years ago, the thing I didn't catch even then was there was a lot of conflict between, like you said, the the different people that came there. Totally. Right? Like there's one scene where this girl is, you know, basically like, fuck Riot Girls. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) And then my favorite part is they they pan over to the the boys that she's with and they're like, what do you think? And she's like, they feel the same Same way. way. (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, you're totally a Riot Girl and you just don't even know it. That was such a sweet irony. It was hilarious. But but that's the kind of stuff. Like, I didn't really catch that. Like, oh. But then thinking back, I'm like, well, of course there were conflicts, right? right? Between I'm a real punk and you're not a real punk, Mm -hmm. right? And then – but we didn't allow for that either. Like, there wasn't a lot of space for that to Mm -hmm. happen either. You know, it was like people were just coming. If you just came – and it was your first time wearing a leather jacket, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just come and wear your leather jacket. You're finding out who you are. There's a lot of that as well. So in my other podcast, You Are Good, we just did an episode about the movie Empire Records. 
And I, in talking about that movie, was talking about all the places where I had people who seemed just exponentially older at the time, but were maybe 10 years older than me, who were so important because they did two things. One, they maintained space, like what you're talking about, a space for stuff to happen that didn't exist in other places. And the other is they weren't condescending. You know, like I think like a lot of times when you're the kind of kid that would feel at home in like a punk or all or all ages space, all that you want is, you know, the at the very, very most is like an adult to take you seriously, you know, and to take your concerns seriously. And even if they're not fully fledged or fully fleshed out yet, or you're still you're obviously still exploring them, you just want someone to be like, it's fine that you're doing that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I that's, think that's revolutionary for a lot of kids. So it is. OK, here's the thing, though. And, and again, going back and, and rekindling friendships, relationships with some of the kids that went there, there are some times when we weren't listening enough. Mm-hmm. Even though I had sort of this space and I had the motto, I think there were times when there were kids that were struggling with some stuff that was deep. And what I'm finding is I may have put them in a box, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, this is the kid that talks about racism. And this is the kid that talks about sexism. Mm -hmm. And now we know enough to know that people who are experiencing those things should take the lead on the conversation, Mm -hmm. right? And that their stories are our stories too, and that we should let them sort of take the lead on on how much they want to tell or don't tell or uh, do something about it or not. And we should be there as supportive allies, Mm -hmm. gay, straight, women, you know, whatever the the, the struggles that people have now. And I, and I think what I'm finding now is that wasn't always the case back then. So right. we allowed them to have the space, but also I hesitate to say they could talk about it, but up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. It may have been just that they could talk about it up to a certain point of what my understanding of what they were struggling with was. Mm-hmm. And to go kind of further maybe scared me a little. Yeah. You know what I mean? So totally. there's a, Well, it's interesting so, to be able to acknowledge that now. A lot of times people just shut that part of their brain off and say, I did the, I did everything exactly correct. And Alex, <laughs> the problem with me is I can't shut my brain off, period. I, I, look, <laughs> like, I can't I, either. It's like, I wish I could. I can't, uh, I can't but, either. But no, this is a, this is a good self-reflection, yes, right? Totally. Like this is a, to, to me, it's an important self-reflection. Well, it, and it, it's connected to potential or I imagine existing growth now. Um, I think a lot of times people are just like, yeah, I did the best I could because if I acknowledged that there were places I could improve, then I have to improve now and that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's all terrifying. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it uh, I mean, in, I, I often jokingly refer to the 90s as before nuance existed. So, <laughs> so I, do, I think there good. was a lot of that too that yeah. was happening yes. where, where we're, we're having a very – just seeing Kathleen Hanna in that documentary and being like – that was the conversation in the way that we were having that conversation at this point. It was very loud because the opposition that you were opposing to was very loud and it felt very binary sometimes. And mm-hmm. it's because for a lot of people in a lot of spaces, it was the first time the conversation was being had in public in yep. that format. Everything, again, like seeing the lamb chop pieces in the context of knowing that like, again, if you're talking about you started the shop in 92, we have like essentially like a, what we know is like modern alt country being 
birthed at that time at that exact time and that's happening and then like the riot girl stuff and then like traditional white punk boys who always look and sound the same through the ages in some way <laughs> you know with like a ramon shirt and a no effect sticker on a on a guitar particularly in the 90s just seeing those yeah but that's cool kid yeah totally but seeing that no absolutely but seeing right. those kids d- do their thing it was it's such a beautiful document of of that time The way that played out in Lucy's and why you see it so evident there was a function of the meeting of my musical tastes and Donnie and April's musical tastes Mm. and Troy Pig, who was also part of that House of Pain booking group and Mm. and zine. They did zines and they did put out records. When we finally got up to code, we were able to start having shows on a nightly basis if we Mm. wanted to, right? And that was a whole process too, which was really interesting. They knew more, obviously, about punk and and what to bring through the shop. And then I kind of knew more about sort of the indie alternative Mm -hmm. kind of world. And so we would just come together every month and book the shows together, right? Like whatever was available, what nights were available, that's what we would plug in. And so it really became – it sort of became a manifestation of what the shop itself was and the kinds of records that we – sold there too, right? Maybe that's not unusual. I don't know. Maybe it was like that for a lot of independent record stores everywhere else. My guess is it was. Mm-hmm. But to have that it not be defined by one genre, uh, I think was really a, a function of the specialness that happened when, you know, they knocked on the door and said, we want to do shows. And I was like, okay. And then the people started to come and sort of, again, again, goes back to listening also to what people wanted, mm-hmm. which was really important. So, but yeah, it was a great time, a uh, really interesting time it, to be a part of that and to wear your earplugs one night because <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were just like, this is really loud. And uh <laughs> And not look at the mosh pit because you didn't want to go to the hospital with anybody, right? Like, please, 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 let nothing happen. I love like, the part of the documentary blinders. where, like, I wish, I wish people would – basically, you say something along the lines of, like, this is the way that people express themselves. I wish they would use their words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh Which is, God. like, it was – Such it a was mom totally, thing to say. It was <laughs> evident you were the mom of words. the shop. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that so much. Oh there are God. all these people. You're you're so, you're like a you're virtually a child in that documentary. Like you're <laughs> like, and it's so funny. You're just the eldest child there, and you're like, please use your words. <laughs> right. right. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah. Do you do uh, you? Um, oh, and then anyway, and oh, then to, and then to hear lamb chop the next night, right? right? Which was just really quiet. So it was right. a great a great. Knowing that you had the background in lecture is so fascinating too, because like again, it was a incredibly special time for popular music like i think that it like in comparison in some ways to like what is like now corporate music it feels like there was a very weird window from the minute nevermind came out to new metal like to new metals the end point in my opinion uh, <laughs> where people were like well very occasionally we can accidentally sneak cool stuff on the radio <laughs> right 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 well Electra was interesting and I, I have to say that that also had uh, working there and with those people also had an effect on the shop as well mm-hmm. because the Bob Krasnow way and he was the chairman of Electra at the time and I worked in the A&R department uh, as an assistant for some incredible people And because 
it didn't matter what genre it was. It just had to be good. Mm-hmm. And they knew what was good innately. They knew what was new and good and not derivative. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that was the time of Billy Bragg. Yeah. It was a time of Anita Baker, yeah. Keith Sweat, Metallica, the Pixies. <laughs> and then they tried some things that just didn't work, mm-hmm. right? But for the most part, it was just this group of talented people who knew what talent was and knew what they wanted to put out there and and was also different in that you know now it's all right we're going to put out your record and if it doesn't do anything in two weeks you're done mm-hmm. right? right then it was all right you're going to put out your first record and we're going to work the shit out of it and try to make it popular but you're also going to get a second and third chance because we want to develop artists we that's what we want to do mm-hmm. it was very important uh, they might be giants. That was yeah, another. Yeah, oh my yeah, god, yeah. it's a very important to and 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 so develop artists was a thing, right? Took years sometimes, but then also just making the artists that they signed sound better right. by hooking them up with, you know, the right producer, quote unquote, the right producer or someone who would help it help take it to the next level. Like all of that was part of that Electra atmosphere, right? So, you know, that definitely had an effect on me as well as I went on and I moved to Nashville. I was like, oh, I get it. I get what a good record label is supposed to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. And you, you bring that to sort of how you're curating and what you're curating. And, and curating is probably too strong a word. Like you, you weren't sitting down Selling? and being like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, you're selling. Totally. And it's so funny too to think about like a, a They Might Be Giants in particular who had, I feel like, two waves. I mean, they had really three waves of fame and continue to be uh, infamous to anyone who loves them. But there was, like, the initial wave of fame who of people who went to the shows and called the hotline and all that stuff. There were the younger siblings of those people who heard them through Tiny Toons Adventures and then got introduced in that way. And then there was the, like, This American Life wave of fame for them. That was such a special... <laughs> Yeah, such a special group that has like three generations of love. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. That's really a great way of looking at well, it. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, they've been together, what, for 40 years? For, yeah, now? forever. Totally. And it's, I mean, just thinking like, I talk a lot about, and I've talked a lot in other contexts about the fact that it's like, I grew up in rural Maine. There weren't punks like in, in my backyard or whatever. You found stuff through – you had to find stuff through cracks in popular culture. You know, and like eventually I hitchhiked to Portland, Maine, and that's how I found other kids like me basically. And like that's how I found punks and stuff. It, it, it would be through like a soundtrack where you like got the soundtrack for X band and then, you know, Y and Z band would be on there and you'd want to find out more about them. Or like it wasn't through – in my backyard, it wasn't through all ages spaces. I had to like go and find those spaces. So how did you – sorry, this is fascinating yeah. because rural Maine, not mm. unlike rural anywhere, how how did you get exposed to – and how did you know like, oh, this is what I like and I don't like what's playing on the radio. Yeah. Everybody else is listening. Starting probably with Pump Up the Volume on, like it was a really good time for weird soundtracks. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. um, and like usually I feel like that's where – Labels that weren't major labels were able to put bands where you could go like, oh, I'm I'm in this for Metallica and I'm leaving with the Descendants. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like there was there were situations mm-hmm. like that and you're like, I want to find out more about the Descendants. Which was so easy to do because you just Googled it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. You had to like find a guy. <laughs> right. How did you even... <laughs> totally. Like, and then so I started going to I started going to Portland when I realized like Portland was a place that had stuff going on. Mm. 
someone I met a guy at a at a <laughs> I met a guy at a comic convention when I was twelve who was running a table who who actually uh, was the, ended up being the art director of the Boston Dig, which was their alt paper. And I was like, I want to make comics, but I don't know how to draw. And he was like, well, there are zines. And he explained what a zine was. And so from that, in my memory, I just started making zines. And then that's how I connected with punks. And that's how I connected with queer kids. And like, that's how I found a community. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it was was that. And then that's how I found the equivalent Lucy's spaces in Portland, Mm -hmm. where I was like, okay, like, this is a place where I feel, you know, home. And I find Lucy's fascinating. That was a five-year spot because a lot of those spaces were like – they had six good months. Yeah. You know oh, what I yeah, mean? Six good months, five bad months, so and they that, were closed. <laughs> that's really funny because I always think like, wow, what, what would it be like if we kept it open, right? Mm. So that is a – Five years is like an eternity. So five years was long, and, and the reason why it lasted that long is because Don Kendall, mm. in his day job, basically did project management hmm. and for construction for a construction company. And so he knew how to navigate the whole codes system. Mm. So I guess maybe it was about a year after sort of doing shows. And I was living at Lucy's at the time too. And after doing shows, he they, we were always afraid we were going to get shut down. Mm-hmm. We were going to, after six months, we were going to get shut down. And that sure. meant no more store. I didn't have a place to live and, and no more shows. Again, no more shows. And so that was always in the back of his mind. And he was like, okay, well, let's sit down and talk about what it's going to take to get up to codes. Mm -hmm. And so he knew how to do it. He got a loan from his mom that uh, that we paid back over time. And he walked us through the process of the build out and closed for a little while to make sure that that happened and then had all the right inspections. Mm And then boom, we're up and running. Like we had an occupancy of, I think it was 183 people that mm. a couple of times we went sure. past. But that's different. Getting, vi- getting, we never got a code violation for that. <laughs> we should have. There were a couple of shows where it was like, oh my God. <laughs> but we had all the exits and, you know, the emergency exits and we had the, the right bathroom and the backflow. Oh, the problems the backflow thing gave us were just like <laughs> really. Anyway, so all of this got us to the point where we could stay open for as long as we needed to because, again, hard and fast rules. We were not letting kids drink or smoke inside that were underage, right? And also we had all the requisite permits. And I think that is the difference yeah, that for sure. makes it that makes a huge difference because um, they can't they can't touch you mm-hmm. when you are doing the right thing right you know? right so we also had the support of a lot of the parents too right right who felt comfortable dropping their kids off mm-hmm. and and Jim Ridley would talk about this and I think he talked about this in the article he wrote about us closing is you know the the parents thought it was kind of weird looking from the outside, but once they came in to check it out, they were like, okay, well, responsible adults Mm -hmm. and everything looks safe and I'm going to drop my kid off. Right. The alternative is not ideal usually. The alternative is like the kid is just absolutely free range and you don't know where. (laughs) Right. 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 As having been that kid, I know that very well. Right, but, right. Um, <laughs> Apparently, I hitchhiked to Portland at yeah, 12. Yeah, totally. Wait, what? Th- that was fine, but yeah, <laughs> seemingly in rural Maine, it was fine. <laughs> I, want, yeah, I want to ask you one, one more question before we get to what you're doing now with things. And you just mentioned Jim Ridley, and you said that mm-hmm. Jim was a, was a huge advocate of yours. And Jim is a person, obviously, not obviously, but I've never met, but I know the legend of. Mm. And 
have lately been spending a lot of time in the Nashville Scene Archives reading sort of his work. It seems like maybe your shop is the thing he dedicated the most ink to ever. Like that, the last okay. day oh, wow. okay. article alone, I think, is the longest thing I've seen published by him. What was he like? What was his advocacy yeah. for the shop like? And why do you think he was a such a proponent of what was going on there? Jim was uh, so special. Uh, he was... He was the nicest person anybody could ever meet, and he was unyieldingly enthusiastic about Nashville and about things that were different and people that were trying. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's I think that's what it is, right? I think if you tried to do something um, to, to be creative in some way, like Jim was your champion. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm just lucky. I just feel really fortunate that he got that he did that. And uh, I I don't know. Just just he just did because uh, he, he was a special human being who could see. He was smart enough to know there was something going on there, mm -hmm. right? Then before I mean I was there every day and I wasn't smart enough to really understand <laughs> it, right? Like. I think sometimes it's very helpful a, to have someone see it with you. He's he yeah yeah no exactly he's a he was a visionary about mm -hmm. so much and I think you can talk to a lot of people who just feel blessed uh, to use a Nashville term uh, <laughs> southern term to have him in their corner yeah basically yeah yeah that's I mean that's whenever I talk with anyone when his name comes up like no one says his name irreverently <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> People, I just found yeah. out that I didn't know that that Noel Murray was a his roots were in Nashville. I didn't know that oh, he's a yeah. person whose writing I followed for twenty years. Didn't know his writing was was rooted in Nashville. Oh. And when I asked him on, I'd asked him on Twitter about it, and he's like, "Yeah, Jim Ridley was my my mentor." And I was like, "Holy shit! Like this is a so this is a person who's had an impact on my life through the people oh, that they influenced." Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. In mean Jim Ridley's influence by. A degree via Noel Murray was – and there it seems like a ton, number of people who he influenced and advocated for in a way where I have a reverence for this man I've never met. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. He touched so many lives and, and that that's an angle – I'd never heard before. I just knew about the effect he had on the people here. But, of course, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense. The ripples. The Jim Ridley effect, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the ripples of someone who, again, so kind, so easily gave himself. I mean, let's not forget, the man was an amazing writer, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah, that incredible. is, And the fact that he stayed in Nashville and gave his gifts to Nashville for so mm -hmm. long, um, we were really lucky. Yeah. We're really lucky. Uh, have you seen his um, application letter is hanging at the scene in the front office? No. And there's a picture of him, I believe, when he's younger. And there, it's his application. I'll, next time I'm there, I'll take a picture of oh, him and send it to you so you can oh, see it. please. And yes. it's, it's so, I mean, it's like written by like Lester Bangs with like more love in his heart. You know what <laughs> yes. I mean? Like, oh, my God. So it's just That's like, Jim. What a great description! Oh my description. god, it's so it's so. I'll send it to you. Oh, it's it's you have it's to. beautiful and and it's just very clearly this is a person who is oozing with heart. 
Yes. You know, and, and wanted to share it in a beautiful way. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's really meaningful. So when I reached out to you, I reached out because of a series of like, I found the evidence on the internet. I found the, the documentary and I was like, hey, I'd love to talk with you about this. And you're like, oh my God, this is a perfect time. Why is this a perfect time? Well, weirdly, I have been looking for something to do. <laughs> and um, uh, that's not the weird part. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, my background is in radio too. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to teach myself podcasting. Mm. And I was like, well, what kind of podcast am I going to do? And um, I don't know, the universe kept in weird ways throwing kids who went to Lucy's in my path Mm. in really strange, bizarre ways, random ways. So I thought about what Lucy's would look like now and how I could revive the Lucy's brand. And because it was meaningful to so many people. And because the universe kept doing that, it dawned on me that the podcast, it's not a music podcast. It's not about um, the shop per se, but it's about these kids that went there mm-hmm. and why they went there and what it meant to them and what kept them coming back and how it affected their lives over the last 30 years, if at all. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it like to live in Nashville 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. What have they gone on to do? And I realized, like, that's the podcast. And mm. so, basically, I'm doing the Lucy's Record Shop podcast. I'm interviewing the people that went there, that played there, uh, that helped make it what it was, mm. the special community. Ultimately, the podcast is about community. Mm. And, you know, what made that community so special is a huge part of it. And yeah. So it's been interesting, and I'm hoping to launch on uh, April 23rd, which is Record Store Day mm. of this year. And um, yeah, so so we'll see. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, so it was great when you called because I was like, who told you? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, nobody. Record Store Day historically has been on my birthday, which is April 22nd. This year it's on April 23rd. I'm glad for, for it. Or it's always been the week, like the weekend of whatever. And I've always felt narcissistically appreciative of the fact that that is well, the that's, Well, that's why it's that day. Alex, <laughs> yes, don't you of, know that? Of course it is. And Chris Brown, who is a who is a Mainer who works at Bull Moose Music up there, uh, is one of the people who conceived Record Store Day. <gasps> no so way! I've always thought that that is a fascinating That really a fascinating is. Piece. Yeah. yeah. So what, what are your plans that. for Record Store Day? I'm going to buy a shitload of records. I'm going right. to buy more records. <laughs> you know, Mary, I'm going to buy more records than I can afford. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're doing this. I love doing this show because I find periods of history that are not yet history, but are history, fascinating. Mm. So I find like the mid-70s through like 1999 to be an extremely fascinating time that often gets overlooked when we're talking about history. So I'm glad that you're doing something that's documenting the community in that time that tells that story. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been great on so many levels. The stories are great reconnecting, you know, talking about the regret I feel about that and, and being able to recre- reconnect with people and, and uh, has been a gift. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's a gift. Yeah. I'm lucky. Well, thank you for uh, hanging out with us uh, here today and telling us about Lucy's. Thanks for asking. Oh, by the way, yes. Lucy's a dog. Lu- yes, she's no longer well, with no, us. Well, no, no, no. I would have, <laughs> unless you discovered some secret. I don't know about. Oh but, my god! But, like, oh, well, Luc- that's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Like, tell you why you, you <laughs> when you were like RPM's not going to work. I'm gonna. It's going to be uh, uh, after this lovely puppy. Because everybody was coming in to see the dog. <laughs> they were like, yeah, maybe I'll buy a record or something. But the dog. Very smart. So, I, I mean, it was just. I think it was a month after I opened, and I was like, 
oh, okay, I get it. And then, um, and then Brad Talbot, who is this incredibly talented graphic designer in town, and one of my new friends at the time, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't, like I said, I didn't know anybody when I moved here. He had done the Revolutions Per Minute logo, which I still have the original mock-ups of that, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. And he did it for free, right? People were, and still are in Nashville, very supportive mm-hmm. of what again, what people want to do. I was like, Brad, could you redo the logo to be, you know, with the dog? And he did. And it, it's a great logo with um, sort of a cartoony looking Lucy with a record in uh, in her mouth. And But yeah, people were coming there to, to see the dog. And it seemed like I didn't have to put too fine a point on the political thing. Right. Right. Or the activism thing or the advocacy thing that was happening naturally. Mm-hmm. And so. They'd get it. They got it. The, the, that is a thing that I will say, this is one of my favorite things about the city now and then apparently is I say to, to everyone here. And sometimes I think people are surprised to hear it here. And I say to everyone elsewhere that like, this is a place where if you're like, I'm going to make a thing, I'm going to do this thing. I've never been anywhere where, where people are as enthusiastic about helping you figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. And it's, it's very, very special. It's very special. And, and it. It gets that what, that exact thing that you're talking about, which actually is a recurring theme, uh, and the, with the people that mm. I'm interviewing, it, right now it's being drowned out. It's still happening, but the but the, it's being drowned out by all of the other things that are going on, mm-hmm. like the arguments about things like affordable housing and the lack of affordable housing, mm-hmm. and about education and about how the state legislature is overriding everything that the cities are trying to do. About growth, mm-hmm. uh, unencumbered growth, uh, about the quality of the tall and skinny houses that are being put up and the right. things that are being torn down. That's part of the very loud conversation. Then there's the other loud conversation, which is the tourists that are mm-hmm. coming here and the fancy restaurants that are coming here and the big names that are coming here. And I think that the third leg of that stool, if you were to look at it in Nashville, is exactly what you're just talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's being drowned out a little bit. So so it's nice to hear it articulated in such a way that you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hearing it from other people as well that it's still going on. Mm-hmm. It's just ha- a little bit harder to hear sure. about it. Like you have to really dig and look and be plugged in. Mm-hmm. And um, But it is still that special... Nashville is still that very special place that it was 30 years ago when, like, this random woman from New York moved to Nashville without knowing anybody and decided, like, oh, yeah, I'll open a record store. <laughs> and then and there was so many supportive people that helped it become what it was. So special awesome. place. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Nashville Demystified. Thank you so much to Chris Burns for editing the episode. Thank you, of course, to Mary for regaling us with these Lucy's tales. Thanks again to We Own This Town for being a network of podcasts by and for Nashvillians. And thank you to you for hanging out here and uh, doing this thing that we do. I appreciate you. All right, take care, everybody. <laughs>